I'm Anya, and I spent decades compartmentalizing and suppressing the different parts of myself. I woke up at age 40 exhausted, confused, and completely out of alignment. These days, I am definitely not your run-of-the-mill bored housewife. So if you are tired of the shame narrative around sex and pleasure, and you're ready to be all facets of yourself, let's create sexual alchemy. This is a Soul Fire production. Hello, hello loves. Happy to be with you all. I am recording this the weekend of the spring equinox, otherwise known as the vernal equinox, otherwise known as the astrological new year. And it is feeling like a lot of new energy is coming alive. It is here. It's happening. All these good things are happening. And this episode, I believe, is going to be released in early April. And I think based on this conversation and some others that I'm having right now, I'm going to deem the month of April 2022 on the Sexual Alchemy podcast as Mental Health Awareness Month, or at least the first few episodes are going to be because the conversations that I have lined up right now are super alive with the concept of mental health, destigmatization, opening up more frank conversations around sexuality, pleasure, all of those things. And I think it's just such an important thing for all of us to be thinking about, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of others, of our children, of the youth in this world, of what's happening. So I'm really excited to be able to be engaged in these conversations and having them. And the conversation today is with somebody that I have long admired and been a reader of his work. His name is Dr. David Lay, and he is a clinical psychologist, sex therapist, and author. And he has authored a number of books that I am just really excited about talking about here. One of them is called Insatiable Wives. And it is about women who stray and the men who love them. It's about cuckolding. It's about the first deep dive into the cuckolding lifestyle from a clinical perspective. And as somebody who works with and gets to know these couples at a deep, intimate level. And it's just, it's groundbreaking work that people in the community that I'm a part of have been enjoying for quite some time. This book was published in 2009 for the first time. And recently it was re-released as an audiobook as well. So I encourage you all to check it out. It's just along with some of the other books like The Ethical Slut and Untrue by Dr. Wednesday Martin. They're just they're books that are life-changing and freedom giving, I think, to many people, but certainly for women like myself. And another book that he has written is around the myth of sex addiction. And we get into that on the conversation today as well. He sort of opens up the conversation for the first time into this niche lifestyle. Additionally, he's written The Myth of Sex Addiction, which is fascinating. And we will be talking a bit more about that on the episode today. And a more recent addition to his authorship library is Ethical Porn for Dicks. A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing of Pleasure. So sit back, enjoy yourselves, and listen in deeply to this conversation between myself and Dr. David Lay. Here we are, live. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, I'm so happy to have you on the show. You know, you've been somebody that I have had on my list of folks that I'd like to talk to for quite some time. But I also wanted to get the show under my, you know, kind of get its sea legs and kind of get it moving first to kind of see what direction it would head in. But I knew that there would come a time where I wanted to have more serious conversations with individuals who work within the realms of sexuality, whether from a clinical perspective, a coaching perspective, a healing perspective, and obviously you're at the top of my list. So well, I'm really you. appreciative of you and your time and being here today too. Well, I, I'm happy to help. I mean, the, um, <clears throat> I think it's really extraordinary. The um, degree to which, uh, you know, podcasts and blogging 
has changed the the kind of the conversations around these issues a lot. Um, the you know the internet in general has led to. Uh, destruction of a lot of the sexual shame that kept people in the closet mm. around their sexual um, se- sexual lives, their erotic selves. And um, it's really been cool over the past couple of years watching folks like you starting these podcasts and exploring their own sexuality and inviting other people to consider doing the same in healthy and thoughtful ways. I mean, I just think it's, I, I, I think it's wicked cool. Um, <laughs> uh, it's fun to watch and, and it's neat to get to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, it's, it is fun to be a part of as well. And for myself, you know, my, my own journey through all of this didn't really kick off until I was turning 40. And so it, it is interesting for me. I, I look at folk that I have the opportunity to speak with and realize that younger generations are are tackling some of these things much earlier. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel very inspired because perhaps they don't have to live under such a heavy blanket or umbrella mm-hmm. of shame and stigmatization. And it gives me a lot of hope. And then it also makes me wonder for my own children, the youth that live under my roof, who are going through adolescence now, what's it going to be like for them? Yeah. But you've been doing this work for so long. And what you just said and touched on is really interesting to me that, you know, as you see people opening up and, and with the internet, the shows, everything that is out there now, you see, you've seen in your work or you've seen in the space that things are shifting and that there is less stigma, less shame, perhaps. Is that, is that true? Is that part of the kind of thing that you're seeing? Um, I think it's, you know, like everything. I mean, I think it's nuanced. I think it's complex. Um, the, you know, the internet, it, 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 it feels ridiculous and, and very sweeping to say the internet, you know, change things. Sure. Right? But in so many ways it did because it led to, um, you know, when I was interested in what consensual non-monogamy looked like, um, you know, I I could find, you know, some books, um, Deb Annapol's uh, books, uh, you know, uh, Ethical Slut, of course, and, and that was really it. There were, you know, there, there, there were hard, you know, and I, I had to go to specialty bookstores to find them, you know, to sure. start to start trying to understand how people were exploring this. Now you jump on Facebook and there's 10,000, you know, uh, people in poly groups who are happy to tell you the right way to do it, mm-hmm. which gets a little exhausting to be honest. But, <laughs> sure. Um, as a result, uh, it, it is so much easier for people to realize they're not the only ones that are mm-hmm. asking questions, whether it's around their sexuality, their sexual fantasy, uh, relationships, monogamy, kink, etc. Um, and that is incredibly powerful. It, it, simply to know you're not the only one um, mm-hmm. uh, it breaks down a lot of the a lot of the shame. Um, and you know, uh, although you know, it seems like every week there are new efforts to restrict and censor some aspect of the internet and sexuality, access to sexual information. Um, you kind of can't put that stuff back in Pandora's box. It, it, yeah. it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit neatly and the box doesn't stay closed. At the same time, though, um, what we're seeing is, and I call it kind of a distillation effect, that mm-hmm. um, the the areas of sexual conservatism are getting more and more strident. They mm. and 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 I think about like 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 a like a a, a big puddle or a lake um, in a during a drought. And it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and the water, you know, content is higher minerals and saline and everything else as it shrinks. The same is happening, you know, particularly in, in, in you know, looking at Texas and Florida, mm. um, Utah, for instance, because sexual conservatives can't keep the Internet out. 
Yeah. Um, they are becoming more and more vocal and dogmatic. And so at long, uh, my, my very long answer, because I, I think about this stuff a lot. Um, <clears throat> I think that there are more people who now have access to uh, different ways to approach their sexuality that don't revolve around shame. But at the same time, the people who engage in sexual shaming are getting louder and louder and louder. Yeah, you just brought up two laws that have been really, in my awareness lately, having adolescents in my home, some who are on journeys that are probably what would be considered kind of self-exploration into something that's non-traditional, you know, looking into their own selves and what it is they might be attracted to and how they identify. And the laws, particularly in Texas and Florida, have been terrifying to me as a lawyer, as a mother. <laughs> and I'm really curious as a clinician from your perspective, I just, you know, not necessarily looking to, for us to, you know, pontificate on our views about it, but just what this could do to our to our young people, to people who are being targeted in this way, I just would be curious to hear a little bit from you on your perspective there. Um, particularly for adolescents, I mean, you know, rates of, of suicide, depression, anxiety um, are directly tied to these, you know, kind of events. Yeah. Um, during, uh, if you remember, uh, you know, in 20, I like to talk about in between the period of 20, 2010 to 2015, our country went through one of the largest social shifts in values in recorded history. In 2010, a survey of the United States identified that a majority of people believed gay marriage was wrong. In 2015, mm. a majority of uh, the population believed gay marriage was right. And that happened because – that change happened because people came out, because mm -hmm. TV shows you know, depicted homosexuality. And people started realizing that a lot of their fear and stigma around homosexuality – was based on ignorance that they just didn't they just didn't know and hadn't met people yeah but as different states started to legalize gay marriage in advance of the supreme court decision rates of adolescent suicide went down mm -hmm. compared to states that were still banning you know gay marriage so there is something about you know seeing aspects of yourself accepted by your society that is very healthy yeah obviously the reverse is true as well for sure um absolutely i have lots of folks that i supervise and train in both florida and texas and they are both you know um therapists in both areas are, are dealing with lots of um lots of anxiety lots of fear, lots of uh, depression, sadness, kind of hopelessness um, mm -hmm. in their patients. Um, yeah. In Nevada, and Nevada is not really a kind of a high profile um, issue right now in these in these things, but, you know, Nevada for several years has been, you know, uh, targeting pornography in their, in their uh, quest to uh, restrict sexual expression and um, identifying, you know, pornography as a public health crisis. Please note, Nevada has the highest, um, some of the highest STD rates in the country. <laughs> Nevada has um, significantly high, you know, gun shootings and violence, but they're focused on pornography. And why are they focused on pornography? Because they think that, um, you know, restricting sexual expression to the behaviors or relationships that they think are moral is critically important for their life and society. Um, interestingly, I mean, uh, Nevada has more porn addiction treatment programs than any other state in the country. Mm. And um, many of those programs specialize in treating adolescents, particularly adolescents who are caught watching gay porn. Oh my God. And so it's covert conversion therapy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, that's the, the, and you know, and that's the sad thing is that those, those kids, those kids never experience um, acceptance. And yeah. as a result, I mean, they, they struggle. Absolutely. 
I was just speaking with um, somebody who runs an organization around suicide prevention and talking about how the idea of identity validation is so incredibly important for people who are struggling in that way. So it's kind of bringing that back up for me, which is these, these youth who have not ever had their identity validated and in fact the opposite invalidated and then tried to be changed and actively shifted through conversion therapy yeah it's just it's a very difficult thing to wrap my mind around but i also grew up in a very very conservative area Mm -hmm. of the midwest and i know that it's when i look at the views of the people that I grew up around, I, I know for them, they feel this sense of danger and fear around this stuff. And they feel like they have to take the stands that they're taking in order to save people. And it's just a very, it's just a very interesting study and Mm -hmm. kind of cultural look at things. So everything you're saying resonates. One of the things that I've I've been really interested in <clears throat> is the anger that a lot of people in those in those more conservative communities and backgrounds feel towards people like yourself who are openly expressing non-traditional sexuality and not getting struck by lightning. <laughs> I literally, I literally call it the the lightning didn't strike phenomenon, and 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 because they they kind of they kind of want it to they they yeah. want something bad to happen to you because that that resolves for them the dissonance because they've had experiences in their life where they had sexual interests that they wanted to pursue and they didn't for fear. Yeah. For fear of punishment, judgment, you know, going to hell, rejection, everything else. And when they see you pursuing those things, it creates this regret. Yeah. Oh, my God, what if I'd made a different decision? Yeah. And then they get angry at you for modeling what could have happened for them. And yeah. and I, you know, and I when i think that way i can empathize some sure. with them sure um and feel sad that they were taught such fear based kind of stuff i mean that you know it's funny you said i've been doing this for so long it 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 doesn't feel like that but it kind of <laughs> does i mean my first book was published in 2009 um and i'd been working clinically with with sexuality issues you know probably about 10 years before that but um but the neat thing is that um uh i've i've had so many people come to me particularly about my first book insatiable wives um Mm -hmm. and and say that reading that was one of the first times that they realized maybe there wasn't something wrong with them yeah and that's cool it's just amazing to be able to be part of that for other people just because i put words on paper Mm-hmm. Well, you were certainly part of it for me. I mean, you're, you know, kind of referencing the fact that I live a, a, a pretty unconventional life in terms of my own sexual expression and insatiable wives. Interestingly, I think I got three books in the same week, Ethical Slut, Insatiable mm-hmm. Wives, and Untrue by mm-hmm. Wednesday Martin, and all have been so, so, so pivotal for, pivotal for me. And it felt it felt like freedom. I mean, when I read this, I was like, oh my word, there is, there's so many people who experience this and it's not, I'm not unique. I'm not, you know, some special snowflake. It is that I'm willing to like dive into it and endeavor to like figure out what that means for me and live it. And it makes me think about, you know, the work that you're doing there's a couple of questions that come up for me. First of all, how did you get interested in uncovering this topic of, you know, cuckolding when nobody was talking about it? Mm-hmm. And I have heard you speak a little bit about it on another show, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But even like pre that, like mm-hmm. what was it that brought you into 
the work that you are doing in sexuality, you know, in the late nineties, like mm -hmm. what made you decide this would be the focus that you would step into? Oh, my last name is Lay. It's not like I had a lot of choice, <laughs> right? You didn't have a choice. <laughs> um, my joke is that, you know, that, that I was I really faced with two options. I could be a politician involved in a sex scandal, but Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Weiner clearly holds the title for most appropriately named 100%. sex politician, right? Um, as a young uh, psychologist, um, there's always work if you're willing to work with sex offenders. And mm -hmm. um and even though I didn't have any training in sexuality um, or working with sexual offenses, um, because I had a good poker face and, and I could, you know, kind of still empathize with these people who had done horrific things, um, that was some of the work that I ended up doing. Um, you know, young family, baby on the way. I, 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 need, I had a job. I needed a mm -hmm. job and, and, and kind of fell into it. And then as I was doing that work, I started getting more and more referrals from colleagues uh, for sexuality issues that weren't um, that weren't offending. They weren't criminal, but it was just sexuality issues, whether it was kink or porn related issues or uh, non-monogamy, etc. That um, people were referring to me. Colleagues were referring to me because they didn't they didn't know how to work with sexuality. And then as I worked with these folks in you know, alternative sexual lifestyles of one frame or another, they were telling me that they got shamed everywhere mm -hmm. that they went, including from other therapists. And so I started working more with, with, with that population and, um, and started, you know, just finding the, you know, a niche and finding the, the need for that work um, and realizing how, realizing how deep my, my own clinical ignorance around sexuality was. I mean, I, as a, <clears throat> most folks don't understand this, most, most therapists, something like 90% of licensed behavioral health therapists in the United States have almost no training in sexuality. Um, which is extraordinary. I mean, you know, yeah. people who have more sex live longer and have healthier lives and have, are, are more satisfied in life. So yeah. you'd kind of think if you're wanting to help people live happier, better lives that you'd focus on sex, but yeah. therapists <laughs> don't. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, the, the rest of my life, my, my career life, I, I run a, a very large behavioral health agency, nonprofit. So I, um, I you know, I, I deal a lot with just the, 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 the boring, challenging stuff, audits and hiring and firing and budgeting and Medicaid yeah. policy and everything else. And so back in uh, like 2007, 2008, I was, I was, I was really struggling and, uh, personally, and I needed something to kind of sink my teeth into. And I uh, encountered these couples that lived the, lived the hot wife cuckolding lifestyle and not have, not ever having encountered it before. Cause like you said, nobody had written about it. Nobody was talking about it. Um, my initial impression was this is fucking crazy. That can't be healthy. <laughs> and, but then it, luckily the, the couples that I encountered were, you know, extremely healthy. I mean, they were successful professionals. Um, one, one wife is the VP of a very significant nationwide corporation. Um, they had, you know, great marriages, families, careers, incredible communication skills. And, 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 and I realized that it was, it was my bias that had mm -hmm. led me to assume that this was unhealthy. So, so I dove into the literature. Um, there was uh, there was one article published on it um, by an Israeli psychologist back in the '90s who did an analysis of wife sharing um, penthouse letters. <laughs> that was it. I mean, that was the extent <laughs> of what what existed in the literature. So I started talking to people and and mm -hmm. interviewed people and reading and researching and trying to understand the origins of monogamy and the the biology and psychology of female sexuality, um, you know, um, 
the uh, why is it that you know women in their late thirties are at the highest risk, so to speak, of engaging in infidelity? Possibly it's because of, you know, um, uh, approaching the end of fertility. Possibly it's them, you know, developing backup plans in case their primary mate or husband abandons them once they're no longer, no longer fertile and stuff like that. And, and so connecting that to uh, female sexuality that I was seeing as I talked to, to cuckold and hot wife couples and because nothing had been written about it, um, I, I got a contract for a book super quick. And, um, and it just launched me into this really interesting path where I, as much as I am trying to, you know, support and educate people in the, in the world around sexuality, more so I am trying to educate my colleagues and mm-hmm. trying to encourage the behavior health field, the mental health field, the substance use treatment field to not be so quick to judge sexuality and mm-hmm. to recognize how much morality kind of sneaks into our clinical thinking. Um, and that's become a big passion of mine. Um, across all my writing, most of my training, um, a lot of my advocacy work. I love that. You said that there is not a lot of sex education for individuals working with people in the realm of like psychology, psychotherapy. Why? Why is that? Is is it the same reason we don't talk about it as a society and the tabooness of it? Or is there something that I am not seeing or understanding yes and um so uh so so these are my theories okay these are my theories and i i have i have some evidence to support them but they are theories um in the 1960s and 70s we had masters and johnson sex therapists who were out there talking about sexuality but the 60s and 70s um were a more sexually liberal time in our country and in the world Mm -hmm. And then in the 1980s, we shifted into a much more sexually conservative um, uh, social uh, approach to sexuality. And therapists stopped talking about it. We stopped talking about sex education. At the same time, um, the AIDS crisis started and HIV and AIDS um, uh, led us to be extremely afraid of sexuality and promiscuity and homosexuality, sexual diversity, non-monogamy. I mean, the the cure for AIDS, the way to not get AIDS was to be monogamous, to be heterosexual and monogamous. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So talking about um, sexuality uh, clinically or in training um, was was not okay. The only research that was funded for decades um, in sexuality was research on HIV, STD prevention, or pregnancy prevention. Um, just in the past six to ten years, there's been this incredible opening up of uh, funding for uh, greater diversity around research. But that's new. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, um, that 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 happened, and 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 I think I'm alone in seeing this link, is that um, in the early 1980s is when managed care came in, mm-hmm. and. The uh, uh, managed care is pretty limited in the things that therapists can bill for. Mm -hmm. Sexual dysfunction, diagnosis codes related to sexual issues, and sex therapy are not reimbursable. Right. And so if you couldn't get paid for it, therapists stopped doing it or talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So another area of sex education that I have started to dig into for myself, probably because of the age that my children are, is in schools. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how familiar you are or if this is something that you are well-versed in and enjoy talking about, but the sex education system in this country is not at large is, is not, is not one (laughs) and it's broken. And I, I understand that we've moved a little bit. Well, actually, no, there's, there's this, there's an astonishing number of States that are still 
really only encouraging and funding conversation around abstinence education in schools. But what 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 is your awareness of what's going on in sex education? Because I was I was very pleasantly surprised when my child came home from school somewhat recently and said, "Mom, they talked about different types of sex at school." And I said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And they said, "With different people who identify differently, like they weren't just talking about." male, female sex. Can you believe that? And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we can have these conversations in my home, but I was, I was mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised that, that their school was talking about, you know, not, you know, different types of gendered sexual yeah. activity, but I think that's pretty rare. It is. And I think it's, I think it's just a woefully inadequate system that we have right now. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I take the strong stance that I think large parts of our country have engaged in criminal neglect of our children and adolescents when it comes to sexuality. Um, And I, and I mean that I think that the, the degree to which we, you know, promote ignorance and fear actually contributes hugely to, you know, depression, anxiety, sexual disorders, sexual dysfunction, sexual mm-hmm. assault, sexually transmitted diseases. Um, the uh, Justin Miller, you know, has these numbers much better than I do. But um, uh, Justin Miller is a, a psychologist, researcher, a good friend of mine, um, lovely Love book yeah. called Tell Me What You Want, several, several textbooks on sexuality. And um, uh, I want to say there's only uh, 20 or 30 states in the country that mandate comprehensive sex education. Yeah. Um, only a portion of those um, uh, of, of the states in the country mandate that the information that is taught in sexual inf- in sexual education must be accurate. Yeah. Now that's that's wild, wild. isn't it? I mean, that, <laughs> wild. That, that, why would we be teaching kids stuff that isn't scientifically it's, accurate? It, exactly. Be, well, let's talk about science in school in general. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but there's this, you know, I mean, like like condoms. I mean, a lot of the absence-only sex education, you know, uh, courses are notorious for inflating the failure rate of condoms in in, oh, other words, in, in a way that is intended to say, see, you shouldn't even um, – yeah, here. try and try and use condoms to be safe. And the research is clear that absence-only education actually increases the chances that when a kid has sex, they won't use contraception and it won't be safe. It increases the degree to which uh, kids that are sexually assaulted keep keep it secret because of the shame around sex. They don't want to be judged as a slut. Um, the, there's this really interesting research that's coming out just, just now. Um, a lot of, a lot of my current work is around pornography because it's Mm -hmm. such a, such a canary in the coal mine, um, kind of issue for us. And, most adolescents experience really no negative effects from pornography use, but, Adolescents who think that pornography is realistic, adolescents who watch pornography and think that that's what real sex is, are more likely to experience negative effects. They're more likely to try to mimic, um, you know, the behaviors that are shown in porn. They're more likely to engage in, um, you know, unprotected or unsafe kind of sexuality because they don't know what real sex is because they haven't been educated. And it's like if we let kids, you know, learn to drive by watching Fast and the Furious, that they would die in flaming car wrecks. That's it. The circling back though, because it's it is the conservative communities that resist sex education that promote abstinence and sexual fear. Yeah, those are the kids that then when they watch porn because those communities can't keep porn out because you can't keep the internet out. Those yeah. kids experience more struggles, which makes the communities panic even more. And yeah. it's this circular thing, but the problem is not the sex. The problem is not the porn. It's the fact that we're not fucking talking about it. That we can't talk. Yeah. 
I totally agree. And porn is a tough one for me because I, I simultaneously think like there's there's some really great porn out there and there is some stuff that is depicted quite well in the sense of like when I think about ethical porn and how people are treated in the making of it and things like that. But there's so much destructive imagery in porn and that is where so much of people's sex education and I use that term very loosely, comes from. And so kind of just speaking about what you're saying, if our youth are thinking that that is how it goes and that is what is real, it is it is very dangerous. And you're right. The fact that we aren't talking about it is really the biggest travesty. What we can expect, you know, porn is never intended to be educational. And we can't expect, you know, that whole industry to shift because we're not willing to do our fucking job as a society. Totally. Um, I, and, and, and I, I, studies that have looked at this find far more levels of violence and misogyny and sexual assault in mainstream media compared to porn. Oh, hell yeah. And we don't talk about. We don't talk about that Im- uh, that impact. I mean, I the average American watches four to five hours of television a day. Um, oh wow! Uh, high levels of porn use are in general around twenty minutes a week. Twenty minutes a week is high levels. Class of, is classed in research as um, the in the top like ten percent. <laughs> So, I probably watch very little TV and a lot of porn yeah. then. <laughs> and, and you know, most people when they watch porn, you know, are watching it for about 10 or 15 minutes right. um, compared to four or five hours of television. And so I, which one is going to have greater impact on, on our values and our thinking, our behaviors? Totally. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. But it's fascinating. But it's I call it the sexy shiny object syndrome. That whenever, right. whenever sex is is present in the story, that's what we focus on, right? Um, as and where the label has to go, right? You know, kind of the bad, like that's bad. Yep. Okay, so along this line of thinking a little bit more, is sex addiction a myth? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it sold it sold a bunch of books for me. Um, so you know, it's it, it, it's kind of a similar sort of narrative. So after yeah. I after I wrote that first book, after I wrote Insatiable Wives, um, I got asked on Doctor Phil because there was this one um, guy in Insatiable Wives who had. He was just obsessed with seeing his wife with um, with have sex with black men, mm-hmm. and um, was married three times. All three wives divorced him because he wouldn't let go of this idea. This was really his focus. Now we can ask questions of why you know why he's marrying women that weren't into that fantasy for him. Um, but I said in the book. Um, "Quote: It'd be really easy to diagnose this guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction." Yeah. So I'm. So Dr. Phil had a show about sex addiction and um, invited me on to, to 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 resist it. Here's the thing: sex addiction is not and has not been in um, the DSM, where we uh, the psychiatric book of diagnoses, um, for decades. And yeah. so the reason I believe sex addiction wasn't real was because a I had little training on sexuality and b it wasn't in the book. Yeah. So after that show, though, I was like, you know, I was, you know, I, I've always been, I guess, kind of a sheltered academic. I'm not an academic, but I'm, I'm pretty scholarly in my approach. And, and, and I was like, wait a minute, people really think sex is addictive? What? Come on now. And so I dove in to the industry and, and the research and found, you know, that, yeah, I mean, a lot of people believe sex is addictive. But the research is pretty clear that um, uh, sex doesn't work that way and that high-frequency sex is actually extremely healthy. (laughs) You know, there is no amount of sex that is too much. So I ended up, you know, I I, I dove in and and I ended up arguing in that book that um, the concept of sex addiction was really using 
psychology and behavioral health language to mask heteronormative monogamy focused morality. Yeah. It was it was slut shaming, um, hiding behind this this pseudoscientific language. The the really cool thing is that you know I wrote that book in 2012, and in 2013 the American Psychiatric Association rejected the concept of sex addiction from being mm-hmm. included in, in DSM-5. Um, and in the years since, there's been a tremendous amount of research finding that the number one, the, there are two main predictors of identifying yourself as a sex or a porn addict. One is growing up religious and two <laughs> is being narcissistic. And so people who have these sexual desires that they want, but that make them feel shitty, that make them feel ashamed and guilty. It can't possibly be their fault. It must be sex's fault or porn's fault. And so they blame sex and porn. Maybe we could get religious dysfunction (laughs) identified as a DSM-5 category. It it has been suggested, um, and I think it's a brilliant kind of idea, that we... that that we rebadge this you know sex porn addiction um, you know syndrome as a culturally bound syndrome because mm-hmm. it really is only occurring in sexually conservative religiously based communities. Yeah, um, you know, gay men and swingers have way more sex than sex addicts ever had, and they don't experience the conflict that sex sex addicts do about it because they found ways to integrate their sexuality in a thoughtful and kind of consistent way in their life so they don't have that internal conflict the it is the internal conflict um and 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 just like just like with the sex education you know issue anya i think that the it's not that people who are um uh calling uh, calling themselves sex addicts aren't struggling i think they are and a Mm. lot of people you know say that I'm an asshole for, for ignoring their pain and suffering. I, I, I really am not. But I want to help them in the right way. I want to help them in a good way. And, and the thing yeah. is that there's no – after 40 years of the sex addiction treatment industry existing, it started in the early 1980s, same time as HIV and AIDS crisis was happening. It's not by accident that most of the symptoms of, of quote-unquote sex addiction are behaviors that – exposed you to HIV or AIDS. Mm. And, um, but after 40 years, there's no evidence that sex addiction treatment works. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence that it probably increases distress and it is an abstinence-based model. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably makes things worse. I want to help those people who are suffering. And unfortunately, telling them that they can fix this issue by stop having sex is bullshit. Well, it's asinine. Instead, we need to help them figure out what is it about you that is making this so painful and difficult because there are other people who have these same sexual desires or behaviors and it's not a problem for them. Right. (sighs) So interesting. And at the same time, not for everyone probably because I think a lot of it could just be like discordance within themselves in a lot of ways, but there also might be real actual diagnosable issues going on for them that are then getting ignored because they've been labeled as a sex addict. And so that's, that's what I'm going to treat. Yeah. 90% of of people um, in sex addiction treatment. Well, so a bunch of numbers. So 90, (laughs) 95% of people in sex addiction treatment in the United States are um, men. And half of those men are white, heterosexual, identified, married, religious men who make over $100,000 a year. That's an interestingly unique population, right? It is. Right? And um, and and so, so there's a lot of kind of excuse kind of issue here. You know, I, I get caught cheating on my wife and, you know, it's because I'm a sex addict and so I go to sex addiction summer camp um, and, uh, you know, do equine therapy, et cetera. <laughs> and now I'm going to be all better and I'm not going to cheat on my wife anymore. Mm-hmm. Um 
but at a, at a more interesting level. Um, around 90% of people that self-identify as a sex addict um, have mental health issues, typi- most typically yeah. depression and anxiety. And here's the unfortunate thing is that men, men are not taught a very wide range of coping strategies to deal with mm-hmm. negative emotions. And, you know, jerking off or having sex is actually a really incredibly effective way to change how you feel. When you oh, yeah. are turned on, your brain can't really worry about stress or anxiety or depression. It just, you know, yeah. it's just thinking about sex. So for many men, being sexually aroused is one of the only places where they can escape from those negative emotions. And when you only have a single coping strategy to deal with negative emotions, you're, you're, you're kind of guaranteed to end up in problems. Um, as I, as I say, you know, if you get stressed out during a PTA meeting and looking at porn is the only way you can manage your stress, this is not going to end well. Right. But telling guys that they're broken because they like sex too much doesn't, help them develop other coping strategies. It just takes away now and increases the shame and guilt they feel over that one strategy that they have that works. Um, so again, it it's focusing on the sex as opposed to these other significant issues. And frankly, right. I think um, many sex addiction therapists are in fact engaging in malpractice. Um, I think that they are engaging in potentially criminal um, levels of malpractice by not treating the actual issues. Yeah. Yeah. One of the episodes that I had heard you on was on another individual's podcast who I think he had previously been a sex addiction therapist or counselor. And after reading your book, and I'm assuming having some conversations with you, realized that that's not something that they believed in any longer either. And and we're kind of going in a new direction. And I thought, okay, one at a time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, I mean, I, it, it's one of the things that I, I think is really, really cool is that um, uh, there are now several therapists that I can think of that were pretty prominent in the sex addiction world that left because they, you know, they were told, oh, David Lay is an awful guy. David Lay is a monster. David Lay is a sex addict in denial. Um <laughs> And we should have been talking about that. That's right. And then they got to know me and they found out, wow, he's not actually a jerk. And his questions kind of make sense. Um, There's this one guy in L.A. um, uh, His his performer name is Ryan Carter. Um, He performs with his husband named Digger. And he's a hardcore leather uh, uh, daddy porn performer. But he's also a former sex addiction therapist, and hmm. he's he's still licensed as a therapist, but he left the sex addiction world as he increasingly saw them being homophobic and religiously based and judgy, and he started reading my stuff, and we got to know each other, and now he's a very good friend. And, and I just, I just love the idea that this former sex addiction therapist is now out there getting gangbanged in gay porn <laughs> and loving it. Loving it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. This has been such a fun, enlightening conversation for me. And also, you know, bringing about some, some topics that I think we all need to think about a little bit more significantly. And so I'm really appreciative of your time and and your presence here. I appreciate Anything people, yeah, thank you. Anything people should know about something that's like super alive for you right now or something you're doing or where to find you? Um, you know, you can find me on, on Twitter at Dr. David Lay, even though, you know, my last name sounds like L A Y it's actually spelled L E Y. Um, mm-hmm. website, uh, David Lay Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'm doing more these days is um, expert witness testimony um, in forensic trials, um, oftentimes related to sexual issues. And I've, I've had the unique um, opportunity to be able to educate attorneys and judges and juries around sexual diversity. Um, around yeah. female sexuality, around uh, kink, around non-monogamy, and 
you know, I'm, uh, oftentimes attorneys ask me, you know, as part of, you know, introducing me to, this, to the jury and, and such, you know, why do we got to do this? Well, we got to do this because the people in the jury have the same level of sexual ignorance that pervades our society. Yes. And so if they are judging on a forensic case that involves sexuality, we need to make sure that they have a more sophisticated and accurate level of understanding of sexuality. So I, um, I, Justin Miller, some other colleagues are starting to do that work more. And it's really, really powerful. Um, it's really exciting. It's very challenging. It's very threatening. Yeah. It, um, you, you, you know, the courtroom is not a friendly place sometimes. Yeah. But it's cool because I'm getting to see things change. Yeah. Bless you for doing it. That is, that's amazing that 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 is an avenue opening up Mm -hmm. to people who are called to be on juries, that they're getting the opportunity to expand their own minds and, and look at things with education behind it rather than this broken system we've all been brought up with. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Um, You know, again, as I said at the beginning, I mean, podcasts like this and um, part, I don't mean this in a sexist way to have women being able to step up and start talking about their sexuality and their erotic self in a way that challenges, you know, thousands of years of cultural suppression of female sexuality, I think is the coolest thing ever. I mean, when I was a kid, I was so enamored with the, you know, sexually empowered women that I read about in sci-fi books, Mm -hmm. but I had a lot of difficulty finding them in real life. And now people like you are out there. And so it makes 13 year old me really happy. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful week. I hope all of you have a beautiful week and yeah, just think about these things a little bit more that we're talking about here on the show today. You know, sex is really fun. It's a wonderful expression, but there's a lot more behind it that we can be thinking about and the impacts that it has on our culture, our children, our society. And so super grateful for conversations like today. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. Friends. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. And one of the things that I would love to enlist your help with is getting some more rates and reviews for this beautiful little show that I am enjoying putting out for all of you. If you have a moment and you feel so inclined, I would be indebted and grateful if you would go to either iTunes or Spotify and give me some feedback and hopefully it's five star. So if you're enjoying Sexual Alchemy, spend a little time to do that for me. It would be a great help to me and it would mean the world. Have a beautiful week.